Love this podcast? Support it and sponsor today. Simply head to OzCastNetwork.com for details. Get great fall savings on all your home care and entertaining needs during the fall home care event at Safeway. Head into Safeway and get deals on products like Clorox disinfecting wipes, Swiffer wet mopping cloths, Lysol all-purpose cleaner, Swiffer wet jet mopping pads, Mr. Clean multi-surface cleaner, or Lysol power toilet bowl cleaner. Visit Safeway.com or head into your local store for more details. Offers expire October 31st. Restriction supply promotions may vary. Kaya, and welcome to The Curb Podcast. This podcast is recorded in Wajak Noongar Buja, Perth, Western Australia, sovereignty never ceded. My name is Andrew Pierce. On this episode, I chat with Appalachian filmmaker Elaine McMillian Sheldon about her new documentary, King Cole. Told in an intimate and reflective manner, King Cole details the history of the all-powerful fossil fuel in Appalachia, United States, stretching back in time to the foundation of the mining region and utilizing the imagery of the coal miner's daughter to explore the myth and dominance that the Black Rock has had on the region. King Cole never condemns those who have worked in and relied on the mining industry as a source of income or stability, with Elaine's supportive narration being one that highlights the importance that coal once held for those in the region, while it also spotlights the need to navigate a path out of relying on it. It's with the focus of the two young girls within this story of King Cole who grow up in the region that we follow this tale of Cole and this almost fanatical adoration that people in the region still hold on to it. Not all of them, though, as there are some tales of tragedy and remorse that come with the relationship that the region has with Cole. Equally so, there's a touch of fantastical realism to King Cole, which is amplified by the stunning cinematography that reinforces just how nourishing nature can be. In this interview, recorded ahead of King Cole's national release in America, Elaine talks about the need to explore the story of Cole in a tender manner, the importance of telling it from her own lived experience, as well as the vision of hope that it gives at its end. King Cole is screening across America from August 11th in New York with further screenings to come. Check out the show notes for further details. And to listen to previous interviews, head over to thecurb.com.au. For now, there's a snippet of the trailer for King Cole, and then we'll be back with the interview with Elaine. I was born one morning when it was drizzling rain. I picked up my shovel and I walked to the mines. I loaded 16 ton and number nine coal. I loaded 16 ton and number nine coal. For those of us who grew up with it, coal is intrinsic. Is coal important to your family? I don't know. Is it to your family? Yes. That creates the kind of bond that you don't just make with any co-worker. No. But coal mining, you go underground, sacrifice your life. You right. sweat and bleed and work. I've seen a time of brotherhood. For nearly a century, we've been told this place is nothing without a king. But like All of this stuff used to be trees and green leaves and ferns. Its spirit fades away. They say my father's father. Then the 
beginning, this place was wild. Sometimes I wonder if our king's ghost is trapped here. I guess you can't take my memories from me. It is not dirty or clean. It is elemental. I learned that you can be proud of your life and want better for them that come after you. There have always been those of us looking for stories that keep us alive. From uh, a global perspective, our relationship with coal is a very complicated one. Uh, and yeah. certainly in Australia, I live in a state which is has been created off the back of mining and, and coal and things like that. So it certainly carries a whole bunch of uh, complicated things that, that arose with the film. So congratulations. It's Thank really you. impressive. Thank you. Yeah. I'm curious, do you guys have cultural um, like traditions similar to what you see in the film in Australia? Uh, in the Eastern States, yes, there is a lot more of that kind of, in the sense that, you know, coal has become a bit of a religion. It's uh, yeah. the personality <laughs> of people. That it is a very much a thing that people defend and hold onto. And it's like, yeah. it's everything about them, even though we've only been digging it up for the past hundred years. Yeah. <laughs> we have short memories, humans. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Very yeah. much so. So I guess uh, the, the obvious question is, when did you decide that you wanted to explore your relationship and the town's relationship with coal? Because it, it's a very personal thing, isn't it, for both yourself and the town itself? Yeah, I have been wanting to make a film about coal for a long time. I've made films about coal and the environment, films about coal and politics for other people, for Frontline and other things like that. But no one really understood this film I wanted to make, which was about the psychology. Um, and initially that just started with me reflecting on my own family's relationship with it and seeing how rooted people are culturally with this particular thing. So started we started filming in 2019, but I would say the idea came a long time before and just took a certain amount of courage to be able to tell a personal story in this way. It's the first time I've used a lot of the cinematic techniques that we use in this film, including personal narrative and that type of thing. But I also think from a point of view of relevance and urgency, this is a conversation that we're having about our relationship with coal and fossil fuels right now, but I don't necessarily see the more messy, complicated human psychology side of that transition as part of the conversation. We mostly talk about you know, the logistics of technology and how we're going to move on and, and why we need to move on. But we don't talk about the people and what that actually means for them. And mm. so I really wanted this film to sit in the context of that urgent conversation we're having and, and, and have a conversation about who's left behind in that conversation and who needs to be brought forward in that. What I found really interesting, though, is that compared to a lot of the climate change and environmental documentaries that take place, there is uh, there is certainly that conversation about the urgency to address the impact of it, but it's also not done in like a browbeating, we must change kind of way. Can you talk about the decision yeah. to be a little bit more gentle in the approach of making sure that that message was still there, but not so oppressive? Yeah. Well, one of the things that my producer Shane Boris said early on is 
you know, if we're going to be telling a news story, which we felt like we were telling a news story of the region, it needs to be told in a new way. And yes, facts and figures might find their way into the film, but this is more of a film that's about the soul of the people. It's more about the mourning and the grief that comes with loss, not just in the coal industry, but loss of identity and community. And so, you know, facts and figures have never been things that have personally moved me towards change and towards understanding other communities in a, a deeper way. And so it just wasn't the initial approach. And from the get-go, I didn't know what this film would look like or feel like, but I knew I didn't want interviews. I knew that interviews were going to solely keep me on the surface of the talking points that we had already heard. And so, you know, the film and the language of the film found itself in you know, forms of expression with sound art and dance and poetry and fables and, you know, creating King Cole, this mythical character, which is a stand-in for the industry. Um, these elements came in when we were trying to figure out what do people already know about coal? What do they already think about coal and this region in Appalachia, which has been heavily covered in, in a stereotypical way in this country for a long time? What are the assumptions they're bringing and how can we challenge those assumptions with cinematic tools? So yeah, ultimately we, we felt you know, even with the final scene, um, which is, you know, a, a call to action when I asked the community themselves to come with their own eulogies to King Cole, you know, those are not scripted moments. That was a scene we set up for the film and 70 people showed up with words to say goodbye. And the fact that that resonated so much with the people there, and it was this real nonfiction moment told us that we were sort of answering the call to action of, if we want to tell a new story about the place, we have to do it in a new way. During the research and gathering stories for the film, was there anything that surprised you about some of the, the stories that people had told or the experiences? Certainly from an outsider's perspective, seeing the the baseball game, I think it is, where if you're an active coal miner, stand up and it's like there seems to be almost like this militaristic level of adoration of coal miners, which was a surprise for me. But what yeah. surprised you? Well, many of these traditions I grew up around coming from a mining community, you know, the the coal education fair has been around for a long time. These sort of tributes have been around for a long time. And so I was familiar with them. I myself grew up going to coal company picnics, right? So that's where the company hosts this outdoor picnic and you do karaoke and there's this like very um, company centered things. But what surprised me, I think, was that how open the coal communities have become to recognizing this is part of our history and we respectfully need to keep it our history and figure out what's next. I was afraid that more people in coal country would be more, you know, I think everyone's generally depicted as being sort of stuck in time. And I think that there's a pretty big group of people that put on these traditions that don't believe coal is coming back to be king, but instead they look at their community and they say, what makes us unique? And mm. the fact that, you know, we live on top of this incredible resource that's totally changed the world for good or bad is what makes a lot of this mountain um, unique. And the film is really calling for a decentering of a king. It's saying mm. that coal is part of the earth, coal is part of nature, it's part of what we all come from, yes, but look at all these other things that we also come from and look at all these other riches among us, including ourselves, including the, the human humans that are here on the land. So I think I was surprised at how much people were able to hold both the positive and negative mm. in tandem 
And that really provided a model for me as the writer to also do that, to say the truth, but also speak it in a loving way and really modeling the way the communities are are trying to move forward right now, which is extremely challenging for them. And they don't know what's next. And that's not totally their fault. I think, you know, a lot of people blame the communities in Appalachia for their own problems. But the fact is like, there's been heavy, heavy politics and money at play to keep this coal centric. And so I think I just was surprised at how everyone was able to walk a fine line and provide such a good model for us to create a sort of more civil dialogue with this film where it's like, yes, this terrible thing has happened from this, but it also provided this. And like, how do we hold both of those things as true without letting them negate one another? And the last thing I'll say to that is we we knew that from our very first shoot when we went to the classroom with the minor who was giving like his historical you know, he doesn't, he doesn't have a kid version of a coal mining story. He tells them like the most brutal story about, you know, your skin's going to melt off and your eyes, your eyeballs are going to be burned out of your head if like methane touches you. And then in the next breath, someone says, do you miss mining? And he's like, absolutely. Right. So the fact that people in coal country are holding these two things that feel opposing and living out their lives really provided me with a lot of surprise and delight and sort of fodder for the writing. And uh, as I'd already mentioned, like there is that, that real gentle nature that you're presenting these stories. There's no condemnation, which I thought was really powerful because again, so often with, with mining stories or coal related stories, it is very much like, Oh, look how bad it is. And yes, it is a bad thing for sure, but it's provided us so much over so long and it's helped, get us to this stage and just because we don't have transition plan it's not the fault of the community it's a fault of politics it's a fault of big money and all this kind of stuff and again that's something that we experience a lot in Australia Um, and it's uh, in the sense that the mining companies have become a little bit more insidious and 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 hiding in the background and you know they support arts organizations and you only find out about it in the the bottom of the sponsors and things like that. It's not a forward facing thing, like having a, you know, a coal fair and things like that. So um, yeah. I found the parallels of it really fascinating. Is there hope in the community? Thinking, yeah, there's hope here. And I, I would say, yeah. I would say just to that note, hmm. I, you know, really, uh, I felt a really big responsibility to not just condemn what hmm. has gone wrong. You know, I, I don't think that this film would be the same type of film if, you know, I still didn't live in this region and have skin in the game of the future here. If I wouldn't have had a kid while making this film and really thinking about what is, does he have a future in this region? And what legacy do I want to share with the next generation of what all this has meant? What does all this sacrifice meant? It has to mean something for us to move on, right? Um, Because if not, what was it all for? And so I think that's, that sort of respect came from trying to when I was writing, trying to think about speaking to the people I love, who I know are very sensitive to this, um, but also challenging them, not like letting them off the hook (laughs) totally. Um, But yeah, there's hope. I think that this film's coming at a time when the region is, is in a transition state. And so the film Mm -hmm. is a reflection of the, I think the, the hope and the mood here in the region right now, which is recognizing that change is going to be really difficult, but it's inevitable and it has to happen. And so um, I don't think I would be making this film right now if there weren't hope here on the ground to be found. But oftentimes I've found 
that hope in my own imagination and our own examples of resilience. And so that's where these elements of magical realism are really important to me is because, you know, it provides a distance. When I was little growing up in the coal fields, like fables were just as true to me, not because I thought they were fact, but the, their stories were just as true to me and taught me something about life just as much as something on the news. And so I really felt that this divide of, you know, fact and fiction could be blurred to allow to give us a little bit of a distance and see ourselves anew. I'd love to talk about the the two girls who we experience a lot of the story with and go on a journey with them, especially with the the wonderful dancing as well. Can you talk about the choice of of carrying them as a bit of a motif throughout the story here? Yeah, so children were naturally a part of the verite stuff that we were filming early on, which is how the film started. The film initially just started with my co-producer, Molly Bourne, and I stomping around the coal fields, finding all these, you know, events, pageants and education and all this stuff. And kids were always at the center of it. And what was interesting was that the kids really didn't know why they were there or what their history was. And this is a story being handed to them and started making me ask the question of, you know, if this isn't their story, what is? And how can we actually see this through the eyes of a kid to have a different conversation? Coal is such a politicized conversation, especially I think globally, but very particularly in America right now. And when we start looking at it through children's eyes, we start asking different questions. Um, when it's their environments, they're dancing in front of the coal piles. When it's um, them talking about their future and whether they want to leave or stay, it just reframes the whole context. And so we actually um, scouted dance studios. I wanted two dancers um, because I knew I wanted movement and dance to be a part of the film and looked for kids that a like to be in nature, like to be out and and enjoy the hills, and also had some type of coal connection in their family. And so we initially found Lainey, who's the redhead, um, who has several generations of coal miners in her family, and like very much knew where she stood in this like coal history. In the homework scene, she's like, "Yes, coal is important to my family." Like those are not scripted scenes; those are them actually talking. Um, whereas Gabby. Um, who didn't know her family's coal history till we made this film. So when, when, yeah, we were, we filmed the homework scene and Lainey says, is coal important to your family? And Gabby's like, I don't know. Is it to yours? Gabby, Gabby did not know at that time that her great grandfather and great, great grandfather were minors. And we found out one day I was talking to her grandma and she told me where she grew up and it was a coal camp. And I was like, were you, were, was your family in coal mining? She said, yeah. I said, does Gabby know this? And she said, no, we never really talked about it. I was like, I will not come up. So we went back to the the town that she grew up in, which is a ghost town now. There's nothing left. And that was the, you know, a moment for that family to sort of reflect on their own history of the coal, uh, of King Cole and their family. So there were some really incredible moments like that, that happened that were nonfiction with the two girls, but essentially what we do is we see there's a coal memorial happening. Let's take the girls and just see what happens. You know, let's take them to the coal fair and see what happens. Let's take them to the the museum exhibits and see what they say is what they say. So, you know, there weren't moments where they were told what to say, what they did and what they said was their choice. But the situations they were put in were situations we put them in. I, I love hearing them talk with one another. And especially like I watched this with my partner and she was so impressed and 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 I guess probably um well impressed is the word I when Gabby's sitting there talking about her how she's got a future planned 
And it's like, I want to be a dancer and I can only do this until my body stops. And then I guess I'll go back to being a lawyer. And it's like, she's got it all sorted out. I love that vision and the understanding of where her future takes her. That kind of, uh, you know, forward thinking for both of the young girls was really quite a powerful thing and reflects on, as you're saying, how the concept of kids are our future and things like that what does that actually mean in practice and hearing them talk about that was quite a powerful moment what what was it like capturing that that sequence I was there? so excited when when we were filming moments like that where Gabby would just go on just like you know I might get my law degree get a doctor I'm, I'm just trying not to laugh because it's so amazing because it's it's not I'm not laughing at her I'm laughing at the the dreams of a kid are like they're not limited and mm. by the environment always and and what's interesting about Lainey and Gabby is they kind of represent two different ways of thinking of kids in this region. Lainey says, you know, I, I'd like to be an FBI agent, but I'll probably be a nurse because that feels very practical. That's something I can do in my community. Whereas Gabby's like, I want to go, I want to get out. And that really, that's really kind of the two things that kids think about when they think about their future in this place. Are they going to do something here or are they going to leave? Because the, the options are, are fewer here. And so in that moment, I just, I just felt like I could see myself in Gabby. Mm. All, all I wanted to do was leave. Um, and now, um, you know, I came back and I chose to come back and I work here now, but I, yeah, it was just a magical moment. And there were so many moments like that where they had these conversations about their future and their age was really important when we were casting, you know, I thought at first we were looking for younger dancers, but something about that being on that, you know, 11, 12, 13, you're sort of in this weird liminal space of your own self between young girl and a young woman and so much uncertainty and so much um, transition that's going on that that felt became really relevant when we were filming that by the time we filmed the final scene, they look different. I mean, you may not be able to notice, but to me as the person who spends time with them, they're taller, they're, they're growing into their own, they're changing too. And so just that metaphor of the and the mirroring of the of change and and the inevitability of change and dreams for the future it it all felt like it fit right into their age really well I want to talk about writing the script and the narration and the decision for you to do the narration as well what was that creative process like for you and and how did you go about writing the script for what you were going to say it was brutal to be honest um I've never worked in this way before. And really a lot of credit goes to my team, my editor, who, Eva Radovojevic, who, you know, one of the main reasons I wanted to collaborate with her is almost all of her films include some form of narration. And she's really a master at understanding what needs to be said and how to pair things back and the delivery and the tone and the pace. Shane Boris, who, oh my gosh, we went through so many um, levels of, you know, who is this? I wrote this script from, you know, the perspective of someone from the future, from the past, from the river. I mean, I did anything and everything to avoid it being a personal story. So the personal thing was the last stop on the train. Like I didn't, I wasn't comfortable with that till the end. And then some contributing writers like Logan Hill, who really brought a lot of clarity. So he would read my 15 pages of free writing and notes and say, I see these elements popping up. I see this sort of like anger and tension popping up. Maybe that's a theme that we can draw in. We can find historical archive that can work with that. And then Heather Hanna, she was the last contributing writer to come on. She's the one who gives a speech at the end, which is an incredible poem she wrote 15 minutes before we walked up the hill. Mm-hmm. 
to film the ceremony. And so she gave this speech and we didn't, we didn't have a clue what she was going to say. And I'm literally weeping while she's talking, giving this speech because she's writing the end of the film and she hadn't seen the film. Nobody at that ceremony had seen the film. The film wasn't finished. And so the fact that she was so tuned in to this language of, you know, some of the words that she was using, um, we mirror earlier in the script, like Cole's intrinsic and this sort of, it's not, you know, it's not a savior or a villain, like these elements of this, this holding both, she did so beautifully. And so it really was a collaboration of me sitting down writing by myself and then putting it out there and saying, is any of this working? What has to be said? So it was months and months. And honestly, we were still tweaking narration until, you know, the day I recorded it to, to actually record the narration. So it was just a really lengthy process that I couldn't have done by myself, but I had to do a big portion of it by myself, just sitting alone, really being honest with what has to be said about this experience. So, and, I, and while some of it's obviously first person, I'm recalling memories of my own grandpa, that's my papa, that's my mom's dad that's in the film. Um, some of it is first person. It's not always, and it is personal, but what's been really great is that people who have seen it can relate to it because it's not it's not overly first person in the sense that it's a memoir but that it's personal enough that people have an entry into it so hmm. yeah hats off to my team because I wasn't brave enough to do it by myself <laughs> but it's so wonderful and so like your voice is a really gentle voice that that carries us through and it, it adds that really beautiful relationship between you the town your family but then also creates that relationship with us the viewer and I found it really quite a, a soothing experience and again cool. it's not a you know leaden thing or anything like that and that's why I've I've really relished the ability to watch it again and saw things that I, had, I didn't see the first time but I found myself moved even more because of the way that you talk and the stories that you're telling and and the reflection on what's on screen as well. Yeah. Yeah. Cause some of those were like memories I wanted to say, you know, I remember realizing you don't sneak up behind a minor, like they'll jump out of their skin. Those, those are like things I do remember, but then other things were just reflections on like, how do we put into context what you're seeing? You're seeing people throw fake coal dust on these 5k runners. Like how, how can we put this into context? So you're not mocking these people. And then other things were, you know, like finding out about the Mingo tree and that being the largest white Oak and what that meant to historic history. You know, I actually wrote that. I found a, a news report from the 1930s, the day it was um, chopped down the first person news report that actually I wrote a lot of a lot from to know what it was like to be there that day. So some of it was based on, you know, historical archive, like the stories of the river. Some of it was based on personal and some of it was just framing up these sort of cold culture scenes so that you had some context and an understanding of what you were seeing that wasn't expository, but at least would it give you some sense of why am I seeing what I'm seeing? And those stories from the region, I mean, they are so important to carry on and to carry on telling and reflecting because it, it makes us who we are. It's part of our culture. It's part of what makes us all distinct and unique and, and all this kind of stuff. But equally so, the visual story as well is quite beautiful. Can you talk about working alongside cinematographer there to capture this stunning 
stunning cinematography. Yeah, he's incredible. So I'm lucky to be married to my cinematographer. So we have a close working relationship where, you know, an idea will pop into my head and he's able to go find it. And one of the early things that we said was that, you know, we both grew up in this region and so many films about this region don't actually show how beautiful it is. Um, and yes, there's a lot of ugly things too. And, you know, those are in there too. The river that's split in half that has pollution, like these things are in there too. But Curran, Curran has an incredible eye for, um, he stays longer than most cinematographers will and waits for the right moment. Almost, I think the entire film, maybe the exception of one scene was completely natural light. So we didn't light anything. Um, We just made sure that Curran was there at the right time of day to get the sort of feeling that we wanted. We knew we wanted textures to play a role. So fire, fog, water, um, actual coal dust, like these things that feel very earthly. So we went and sought textures. Um, We knew we wanted seasons to play a role and jumping between the seasons as sort of a form of magical cutting. So it really was a matter of gathering, kind of like a squirrel. Like if it was spring and we would see it was starting to bloom, Kern would go out for two days and just gather those images. And and then it was a matter of Eva and I figuring out in the edit how they all play a role. So a lot of this film, all of this film was filmed in the edit. And the two different sort of styles we thought about shooting was that, you know, in Cold World, everything's locked down on a tripod. So, you know, the camera doesn't move. It's very static. It sort of represents the the nature of King Cole's world, which things have to stay the same in order for the king to stay in power. Whereas the the camera starts moving, gets more fluid, a sh- more shallow depth of field. And it's more focused on like a human or a natural aspect in the scenes that are feel more magical or more dreamy. And same went for the sound. You know, we put a lot of work into the sound and sort of this machine world and this more human world. And the score also represents that too. You know, the the drum, the beating of the king's drum and more um, metal and mechanical sounds in that part of the score. Whereas there's you know, breath and whistles and other things that are human related and strings in the parts of the of the more future forward. So mm-hmm. yeah, we we thought about the film as having two worlds. And Eva, my editor, always drew it as like a rectangle split into two triangles where it started very dark, coal black, and then it would sort of like ease into the greenness of the final end of the film and so sort of give way to it. So that's that's how we thought of the structure. That's how we thought of the cinematography. That's how we thought of the music um, as was sort of a merging of these two ways of being. Of course, it's it's coming up to release in the world. And, you know, this is a film that deserves to be seen on a big screen because of all that imagery that we're talking about. What's your feelings about it heading out and what do you hope that people take away from the film uh, when they see it? I'm so excited that, you know, we've had such great response going to theaters and say, I mean, we're completely independently distributing this film and it's incredible that theaters, independent cinemas all across this country are excited to show it for a week. That's just a dream come true because we did put a lot of effort in this being a big screen experience and a sound experience. I mean, I guess for the people here that see it, I would hope that it provides them a bit of salve and balm to the the healing that needs to happen um and a reminder that we're gonna be okay that you know we 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 were okay before the king and we will thrive after um but for 
elsewhere, there's just so many things I think people could learn from the film that it's not a film that teaches you outright, but I think that it gives you a lot of space to reflect on what you're seeing. I hope that people maybe are a little more kinder and gentler when we think about transition and what that means and who's involved with a just transition, who's not. Yeah, I hope that the, the universality of the film, like we've, you know, we've mostly talked about what it means for this place and for me being from this place, but we're all from a place mm. and our identities are all formed by place. And we often, you know, we live in such virtual spaces and now that we don't often think about the role of environment and identity, but it has a huge role to play. So I think that there's a universality to that. And I, and I hope that people can just see this region in a new way. I, th I think, you know, as much as, as much as it matters that we move forward here, I believe that stories are really powerful. And that's sort of the whole point of this whole film is it's like all the stories that I grew up when I was a kid growing up told me that this region was a dead end poor and you needed to leave. And I hope that this film can sort of do a little bit of corrective storytelling in um, giving agency back to people who live in places like this that feel a bit hopeless because I think that stories can undermine us or they can lift us up. And I, and I think that that's universal as well. So, and I hope it's just a fun experience. Like I think it's a fun yeah. film to watch. Um, I think yeah. it's in, like a theater experience is if, you know, it's different. It's not your typical documentary. So it's it's hopefully not going to like leave you feeling really, really heavy, but maybe make you feel a little bit more thoughtful about our global political situation, geopolitical situation. Yeah. Well, I mean, I certainly in both times I watched it, I felt lighter, you know, which is a strange <laughs> feeling like the subject matter. When I read about it, first of all, I was like, oh, gosh, you know, I, yeah. I'm always fascinated by these kinds of things. And I'm like, this is going to be heavy. But then I sit there and I was like, this is actually really beautiful. And, you know, <laughs> it is a very optimistic and hopeful story. Uh, yeah. So I think that, that hopefully people will get that experience, the same experience that I've had, because I found it, it, I'm not lying when I say, I think it is one of the best films I've seen this year. It's just a really beautiful contemplative story that I think we need to hear, uh, not yeah. just from an American perspective, but from a global perspective, because as you're saying, stories are from places and we're all living in places that have been affected or impacted by fossil fuels. And so how do we make this transition? Well, let's not forget the people. And that's yeah. the, the most tangible connection here. I found it so, yeah, so fascinating and, and engaging. Um, yeah. So thank you again thank so you. much for the film it's, and thank you for your time no <laughs> it's thank been you wonderful. It's, it's really wonderful to have an international writer on this because we've not been able to really convince people this isn't just an American story which has been so difficult because it's not you know that um yeah. and so yeah it's wonderful to hear your perspective I, I appreciate it love this podcast support it and sponsor today simply head to oscastnetwork.com for details how powerful is the Cox Network? So powerful that one day, the internet will let your doctor perform miracles from thousands of miles away. Connecting to remote operating room. Giving a whole new meaning to the term house call. Operation complete. The Cox Network. With gig speeds everywhere. It's internet built for tomorrow, today. Cox, bringing us closer. In Cox serviceable areas, speeds vary and are not guaranteed. Cox terms apply. Other restrictions may apply.